This is a message from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. We pray that it will encourage you in your walk of faith. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Youssef or Leading the Way, please visit ltw.org. I don't think there is a doubt in anyone's mind that our world is very sick and is getting sicker by the day. I don't think this is information to any of you. I have some non-believing friends who are saying that to me. Amazing. The so-called sexual revolution has kept on digging deeper and deeper moral hole. Selfish ambitions and not the security of the nation is blinding so many politicians. The pursuit of self-interest is not pursuing the interests of the citizenry on the part of the leadership of our country, but self-interest and self-promotion. And even in the church of Jesus Christ, there's some who have abandoned the truth that they once preached and once believed for the sake of popularity and acceptance. In many a marriage today, there is so many broken vows for the sake of one's unbridled lust and selfishness. Globally, you look around and you see how nations are raging against nations and and hacking computers of other nations and seeking the destruction of other nations. Everywhere you look, you see that our world is getting sicker by the minute. Now, the greatest danger for believers who live in this sick world is that they can get infected by the world's spiritual illness. And we see it all around, church leaders, both lay and clergy, that I personally have known, uh, had strong biblical stance. Now they question the authority of the Scripture. And the question is this, how can you and I live healthy, spiritual life in a sick world that's getting sicker? Now, through the years when I needed answers to big questions in life, I have learned the hard way that all of my attempts, all of my studies, and all of my answers, they, at best, not the worst, at best, are very temporary. But if I go to the Word of God, which I fully trust as infallible and inerrant, I get permanent and lasting answers. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go to the Word of God. As I commence this series of messages entitled, healthy living in a sick world. We're going to be looking specifically at the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. You may ask, why did you choose 1 Corinthians in order to show and illustrate this? Well, Corinth the city and Corinth the culture can be easily identified with modern 21st century Western culture you will see how the sickness that the believers in Corinth were exposed to is very similar to ours. You're going to find out that so many of the issues that Paul points to here in that first epistle is part of our world today, that so many of the cultural infections that was threatening to infect the church of Corinth are familiar to all of us today. So many of the ailments that we see today Paul faithfully deals with in the church of Corinth, and that is why it is of uttermost importance and relevance for us today. A little bit of background. 
Paul pioneered the church in Corinth. He was the first one to preach the gospel in the town, in the city of Corinth. He founded the church of Jesus Christ there in Corinth. Paul received a lot of grief from the church of Corinth. And that is why he writes two of his longest letters, two of his longest epistles in the Bible to that church in Corinth. Why? Because Corinth was not an easy city to preach the gospel in. Uh, Corinth was not an easy city for the believers to remain faithful to the Lord in that city. Corinth, the culture, was very difficult, and as as difficult to live the Christian life as it comes. In fact, my wife and I have visited Corinth back in 2009. We happened to be in Greece, and we said, you know, I preach from, and I've studied the Corinthian epistles. I want to go and see the town. So it's a short distance from Athens. We drove up there, and I'm telling you, it is a non-significant city now. (laughs) It's not all that great. But back then, it was the crossroads of trade. Back then, it was the entertainment center. Back then, it was a cosmopolitan city where people from all over the world were living in Corinth. Back then, it was the center of pagan worship. Back then, it hosted two of the major global athletic events. Back then, it was renowned for its corruption. Back then, it contained the temple of the goddess Venus with its 1,000 prophetesses. In fact, Corinth became so synonymous with immorality and the dreadful immorality of Corinth It was known for his sexual license that sometimes if you want to insult a person or insult a town, and you say they are being Corinthianized. Against these impossible odds, the Apostle Paul preaches the gospel in Corinth, and there he founded the church of Jesus Christ in that city. So you can imagine that in the midst of this toxic environment to say nothing of the human tendency toward friction and infighting, and you see the issues that Paul deals with. Like so many churches today, the Corinthians believer, listen to me, the Corinthians believer had a very hard time not to import the godlessness and the immoral culture into the church. They have had a very hard time, and they had an extremely difficult time not to be impacted by the immoral culture around them. The Corinthian church had a a ferocious battle in their hands in resisting the infection of that sick world. Bottom line, they were importing godless lifestyles into the church. They were importing godless methodology and methods of operation into the church. They were importing worldly techniques into the church. Please listen carefully. Here is the real battle among the believers. They wanted to hold on to all of the blessings that came as a result of their putting their faith in Jesus, but they also wanted to hold onto the immorality of the culture of the day. They wanted to have one foot with Jesus and one foot with the corrupt culture. They wanted to go to church one day a week, but for the rest of the week, they wanted to be like their immoral friends. And that is why Paul tells them in chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, that this is impossible. 
It's impossible to do. Something is going to give sooner or later. Others in the church had confused priority. Listen to me very carefully. This is important because easily we have confused priorities, like the Corinthians. What they did, they shunned the pagans and the world completely, whom they're supposed to be reaching out to and testifying to and reaching for Jesus Christ, but then they've been chummy with the immoral, incarnate Christians. And Paul is saying you should do the opposite. You should shun the immoral and the carnal Christian, and then you should reach out with love to the pagan world. Confused priorities. And he says, stop that confusion. In fact, the church of Jesus Christ in Corinth had so many ailments, and that is why Paul is anxious, particularly in this first epistle, to deal with these issues, to treat those illnesses, to rehabilitate them, to back to spiritual health, to bring them into wholeness in Christ. But the one thing that hits you like a lightning bolt if you focus on it, (laughs) that in the midst of all this, he called them saints. The NIV said holy, but really literally the word saints. Some other translations say saints. Listen to verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. Can you imagine that? Together with all those who are very in, in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Back many years ago, and basically in the infancy of this church, and we were discussing the vision and the mission of the church, and as many of you know, we settled on reaching the lost and equipping the saints, which comes from the Scripture. But one of our new believers who went to be with the Lord now asked me the question, he said, who are the saints? (laughs) I said, the believers. He said, oh, I don't feel like I'm a saint. And that's because we have we use the word saint in a very wrong meaning today. If somebody does something nice to you, you say, oh, you're a saint. No, he's not. He may be kind, but he's a believer. He's a saint anyway. <laughs> Sometimes we think of a saint as those in shine and stained glass windows. Or like in Rome, the Roman church, where they, you have to have done something supernatural, something powerful, in order to be canonized and called a saint. Yet Paul is calling the Christian believers in Corinth messed up as they are, as they were. He calls them saints. How come? Beloved, listen. According to the Word of God, every true believer in Jesus is a saint. Every born-again believer is a saint. Everyone who believes that Jesus is their only Savior and Lord whether they are faithful or not, whether they are totally committed to Him or not, whether they are active or not, whether they are faithfully living for Christ or not, Paul calls them saints. (laughs) I told you, it's mind-blowing when you think about it. Why? Because believers in Jesus are saved by grace and not by works. Because believers in Jesus are positionally saved even if they are not acting like it. 
because believers in Jesus have nothing to do with what they did or did not do. Now, before I go any further, I want to balance this. Listen carefully. God has an amazing way of disciplining His wayward children. Now, I know that some Christians don't like the word discipline. I said, do you want me to take it out of the Bible? He says, He disciplines those whom He loves. He chastises those whom He loves. God has a way of chastising sinning saints. God has a way of dealing with the constantly and continuously disobedient saints. I just want you to know the scriptural balance here. You're being chastised. You're being disciplined because you're running away and you're being a saint but not living up to it. These Corinthians, with all of their flaws, they had doctrinal flaws. They had moral flaws. They had personal flaws. They had confused priority flaws. And yet Paul calls them saints. In practice, they were gross sinners. (laughs) But in position, they were saints. Why? Because positionally, God see the believers through the righteousness, the prism of the righteousness of His Son Jesus, who took our sin upon His cross. Positionally, we are already sanctified, but also we are daily being sanctified. And that is why the Holy Spirit always brings us under conviction in the area of our practice. He doesn't bring us under conviction in the area of our position because that is settled. Therefore, there is no condemnation upon those who were in Christ Jesus. So the conviction comes in the area of our practice. I want to explain this. A president is a president, whether he acts presidentially or not. A prince is a prince, and it's called prince whether he acts princely or not. Many years ago, in this church, we had the privilege of having my dear friend and mentor, the late John Stott, one of the great theologians of our time. He came and spent a whole week at the Church of the Apostles, and he taught every group in every area. It was just a great highlight. I still look back to it with great fondness. And on Saturday morning, we were just you in this building and brought our vestry members and the trustees and all the leadership of the church together for breakfast, and he spoke for two hours. And he was talking to us about this whole subject of sanctification. And he told a story about King George V of England. And he said that King George V forever saying to his sons, to his boys, my boys, remember who you are. Remember who you are. As a matter of fact, you know, one of them disgraced the family and had to abdicate the throne. And then, of course, as a a British patriot who happened to be the chaplain to the queen at that time, he went on to express lament over what's happening to the current royal family. So, beloved, listen to me. If we are honest with ourselves, we will discover that every time we fall into temptation, every time we deliberately sin, 
Every time we fall into ungodly behavior, it is because we have forgotten who we are, that we are truly princes and princesses, uh, that we are children of the King of Kings. When we are tempted to take the wrong turns, when we are tempted to wink at sin, when we are tempted to compromise our convictions, when we are tempted to take the shortcuts and the easy way out, when we know it's wrong, at that moment we need to stop and remind ourselves who we are, that He who dwells in us is greater than He is in the world, that He who dwells in us is more powerful than temptation, that He who dwells in us can give us the power to live a healthy life in a sick world. On what basis are we to live healthy lives in a sick world? Well, chapter 1, verses 4 to 9, Paul gives us the answer. Because we have been declared to be saints, or as I said, the other translation holy, we've already been declared that, therefore, we should live holy lives. Because we have been given holy nature, therefore we can live holy lives. Because we are seen by a holy God to be holy, (laughs) therefore we can live holy. Now, I'm going to give you a little grammar lesson. This is just going to be very brief, but it's going to bless you. Here, you see the indicative comes before the imperative. You say, what's big about this? It's very big. Listen to me. The indicative forms the basis for the imperative. Because the Pharisees and the legalists also, you must not do this, and you must do this, you must do this, you must not do this. What it means for the indicative becomes the basis for the imperative. Here's the indicative. You are. That's the indicative, right? This is the indicative. You are. What's the imperative? Therefore, you must live like it. Because you already are. Therefore, you live like it. You are. Live like it. That is really what this great blessing is about. Your child will always be your child, no matter what they do. He or she is your child. And for those who may have wayward children, let me tell you, The most important thing you can do is to remind them of the love you have for them because he or she is your child. Nothing is going to change your love for them. But listen, I'm also aware of the fact that those wayward children may break our hearts in two by what they're practicing. But that does not change their position as your child. This is true with the believer who is living deliberately in disobedience. They are breaking the heart of God in two, but God remains faithful to them because He cannot deny Himself. Oh, but listen, as I said, He will chastise them. He will discipline He will go after them, and I know that from first-hand experience, when literally God grabbed me from the back of my neck, kicking and screaming when I ran away from the Lord. He's going to get his man. God is going to get his woman. 
If it takes him years, he's going to do it. That is the great blessing of our faith. Today, I want us to look at the very first inconsistency between position and practice. Our position as children of the living God, redeemed for all of eternity, and the unfaithfulness that some of us practice. I'm going to show you the first inconsistency, and I'm going to show you why Paul, of all the problems that we're going to see in the coming series, all of the problems, he chooses this one as the first inconsistency that is not honoring to God. Here in verses 10 to 17, you're going to see that first inconsistency, because the one thing that breaks the heart of God when any, any church, any church, when there is a strife and division. I am aware of the fact that quarrels and arguments and disagreements are all part of life. I know that. If you watch a little child before he can verbalize and speak well, and he looks at something, now with four kids and ten grandchildren, I've seen it happen over and over and over again, before they can talk. If they want something and they don't know what the name of it is, they go like this, uh, uh, uh. You know what they want, right? If you refuse to give it to them, what do they do? They throw a tantrum, right? They throw a royal, royal fit. Now, beloved, you and I have seen 200-pound babies who throw fits and tantrums when they don't get their way. We've seen it in homes between spouses, and we've seen it in churches. Here's the problem that I think all of us know. When one spouse continuously and always insisting on their own way, insisting on always taking and taking and taking, insisting on always demanding and demanding, the seeds of destruction begin to be sown in that marriage. Now, I don't know about your marriage. I know about mine. And the core problem is sin, and the sin of self-will, and most of it on my part. (laughs) From birth to death, the natural inclination is to be and to have and to do what we want. The whole culture encourages that. The whole culture says, grab all you can. The whole culture said, the sky is the limit. Go for it, regardless of whom you hurt. I want to give you a little nugget here that I want you to tuck it in your mind, because you're going to need it at some point. The word that's translated here, contention, I don't know what your translation said, but it's a word translated literally mean contention. This is the word iris. That's E-R-I-S. And iris was the goddess of strife and wrangling. Beloved, listen. When the goddess of strife and wrangling rules supreme among Christians, Satan rejoice. When the goddess iris of strife creates the atmosphere of gossip and backbiting and fighting and disagreements, Satan is delighted. 
He really is. Why do I say this? Because there are few things that can mar the testimony of a believer, like quarreling and fighting. Today, there are many divisions in the church which actually causes some non-believers to be squirmish about the Christian faith. And I'm not talking about the silly things, the non-important things, the non-necessary for salvation. I'm talking about the big biblical doctrinal issues. I want to give you a litmus test. Here's a litmus test. You can apply it to yourself, apply it to your Christian friends. If a person says, Pastor Smell Fungus said, you know that he belongs to a cult. It's cultish. They follow a leader. If a person says, the Word of God says, you know they Bible-believing Christians. <laughs> the person who quotes the Scripture, he's a follower of Jesus. The person who's constantly quoting a pastor, no matter who the pastor is, he belongs to a cult. Listen, and I hope to God that no one, none of the members of this church, and nobody would go and say, Michael said. Because if I'm saying is what the Word of God said, and I want to encourage you to cut out the middle man and just say the Bible said. Can I get an amen? All right. All right. That's all right. That's fine. The Corinthians here, there were lots of spiritual sickness, but the Apostle Paul chooses to deal with this one cult of personality first, because it's that important, that important to Paul. Because cults seek converts to their cult and to the cult leader instead of converts to Christ. In fact, you look at this beautiful sanctuary. When it was being built, the late Bill Johnson, who was the chairman of the building committee, he would ask me, for two years he would ask me to come to the building committee meeting. I wouldn't do it. He said, you need to come to the board. I said, I'm not coming. He said, why? He said, I don't care. If it's a yellow-green carpet, I don't care. If you paint the church red, that's fine by me. I don't care. Why would I come and waste your time? He said, but I worked with pastors before. who would not have a building committee meeting without them being present. I said, that's right, but you got an odd one here. <laughs> My personal view is that these men know what they're doing. Why should I go waste their time? But when it comes to the issue of biblical authority, when it comes to the infallibility of the Word of God, when it comes to the centrality of Jesus Christ, I want you to know this is a hill that I'm not only willing to die for, I'm ready to die for it even today. When it comes to biblical authority, when it comes to the inerrancy of the Scripture, you'll find that in this church there is no division. And I'm going to tell you why. What you hear from this pulpit is what you hear in Bible classes, is what you hear in home groups. Why? Because God is not confused or self-contradictory, because God does not disagree with Himself, because God and His Word are one. The Holy Spirit authored His Word. And that is why Paul was appealing to the Corinthian Christians to agree on the fundamental truth of the Scripture. He said, you should not follow personality cults, even if Paul himself is one of those personalities. I belong to Peter, and I'm really following Paul, I'm following Cephas, and I'm following… Come on. Paul said, did Paul die for you? 
Was Paul crucified for you? Was Apollos crucified for you? No. No, and a million no's. What's the ultimate purpose of unity in Christ? What's, what's the reason? Why? Why is it? Because unity in Christ is the will of God. Can you say that with me? Unity in Christ is the psalmist said, How beautiful it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. In First Peter chapter three, he talks about unity between husband and wife. And he makes it very clear when there is dysfunction or no, no unity or disunity between husband and wife, he said, your prayers will not be answered. The second reason why, because unity in Christ glorifies the Lord. And that is why the source of our unity is none other than the Holy Spirit Himself. <laughs> and He's the author of the Bible. He's the author of the Scripture. Paul repeats this very principle to the Philippians when he said, do nothing out of selfish ambitions or empty conceit, but with humility put others ahead of yourself. Now, beloved, listen to me. Walking in the Spirit, submitting to the authority of the Spirit, placing oneself under the Word of God produces both humility and unity. Certainly produces love for one another. But carnality, on the other hand, produces pride, self-centeredness, self-will, and hence division. Years ago, I read the story, and when you hear the language, you'll understand it was the language used back then. We don't use it now, but that's just… I'm going to repeat the story as I read it. A visitor went to visit what was called back then an insane asylum. And the visitor saw that only three guards were guarding 100 inmates. And so he asked the deputy warden, he said, don't you fear that these 100 people will overpower the three guards and escape? I'm quoting word for word here. The deputy warden said, no, because lunatics never unite. As I said, that's the language of yesteryear. We don't use that now, but… It is true spiritual sanity unites people in Christ and for Christ. True spiritual sanity will produce the fruit of the Spirit. True spiritual sanity is going to attract non-believers and even those starving Christians who are in, in a dry land is going to attract them to Christ when they saw that unity and love and commitment. 